0: Uh, Make the Louisiana Purchase, which is a very good deal, and it's interesting that the 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 reason he was able to make that purchase was that the United States federal government had good credit, even back then when we were not printing our own currency, we were using uh, silver dollars, and the foundation for that sound credit of the U.S. government was laid by the first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, who was Jefferson's. (laughs) political opponent and they work together on some things so uh, it'll be interesting to see how jefferson was able to use that good credit of the u.s government the the basis which is based on the u.s dollar uh having a fixed value fixed to the mexican peso coined in uh, san luis potosi the mexican silver peso so that that was a, a foundation. Mm, I
1: about
0: that yeah, sometimes. yeah. Zacatecas, San Luis Potosi. Yeah, you're
1: excluding the Spanish silver dollar.
0: That's where it came from. It was minted in Peru and in Mexico. In Mexico mostly, yeah, but in Peru also, because it was brought then up to uh, through the isthmus of Panama. And, to and the to, actual dollar. To you gotta Cuba.
1: continue the story as but, uh, learned by, uh, by your fellow co-hosts who taught you. Something. Tell us.
0: Tell us about that.
1: The back of the Ocho Reales de España coin. There are several of them. They all had the same two columns so in the back. So two columns, that's why you have the a, S. S. And the S of the dollar sign. Because okay. they appeared in the ship manifest. Okay. And the only way to demand payment in silver dollar, which everybody wanted, as you right. just said, was to payment in the two columns and the big S, which were the silk reefs uh, that, were, that were... Oh, rep- you
0: mean the Spanish uh, symbol.
1: It was, yeah, it was known, the the reefs, uh-huh. the S around the two columns was mm-hmm. the reefs that you see on the back of the coin that okay. had the, the old world and the new world represented half and half in the globe, okay. kind of like the yin and yang logo, where okay. half of it was the new world, half of it was the old world, and then the two columns to the right and to the left of that uh, <laughs> world globe, and then there was a crown, well, yep, the king's crown. E-
0: even now that You S- can
1: Google this, by the way. Google Ocho Reales de España. Yeah and Google Images, and you'll see the dollar sign.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the S with the two lines through it is the symbol for the currency all over the Americas, including Dola. in Mexico and Argentina. because yeah, they
1: all had the dollar. They
0: all use the same thing, and so that's why when you're But who doing, used it first? Uh, I don't know. It may have been the U.S. Uh-huh. But, but the, uh, that's why in international transactions— Actually,
1: who used it first he, were the Cubans, the Spanish Cubans in
0: right. Cuba. But uh, what you often do in international transactions is you put U.S. dollar sign to make it clear that you're not talking about the Canadian dollar or the Mexican peso or the Argentine peso or any well, other currency. Well, we also currency. eliminated
1: one of the columns, I guess, in the world. And when we turned to computers and calculators, yeah, we well, got rid they, of the yeah. two bars.
0: Well, they have one bar now on the computers.
1: Yeah, if really you look, look on your if you look on your keyboard, there is no two bars. There's one bar. Mm, okay. So. I guess for the purposes of distinguishing the font on the computer.
0: We oh. have a question on whether the phone is working?
1: Oh, my God. Come on, man. Who? What is going on here with this ringtone? What is going on with the ringtone? I have no idea why they say it doesn't work. I don't understand. There you go. I'd like to know how we lost our ringer. This is Adam Levinson, I predict. Is this true?
2: This is 100% accurate. Good evening, gentlemen.
1: Hi, Good evening, Adam. Gentlemen, uh, Jefferson would be rolling in his grave because we don't have our ringer on. Can you believe it? You know, Adam, how are you? and I'm here. You've been traveling. Uh, big man on campus. He had no time for us. You know, <laughs> what's going on? The country cannot wait.
2: So I'm going to warn everybody that uh, well I've got two weeks worth of material because uh, my plane was delayed last week, so we we had to postpone. <clears throat> so plenty of material to discuss tonight, all about Thomas Jefferson and the Jefferson presidency, and and some can argue that he accomplished more in his first term of his presidency than many other presidents could ever, you know, hope to accomplish. With with the exception of Donald Trump,
1: he realized that. Yeah, right, right, right.
0: But wait a minute, but other than the uh, Louisiana Purchase, what else did he do?
2: Okay, so that's an excellent question. So let's tee up and just give a quick summary of some of the legislative accomplishments. And what I hope to do tonight is to walk through his politics, his philosophy, and I have no doubt that the the listeners to this program will thoroughly enjoy and thoroughly agree with 90% of Jefferson's philosophy, uh, his accomplishments, and we'll talk about his personality because they all fit together. So those are the topics we'll talk about. But since you asked about his accomplishments, his legislative accomplishments, and as everybody who listens to the show on a regular basis knows, StatutesandStories.com, which is this history website that uses primary sources. So we focus on looking at these old statutes and try to use the statutes and the laws as a vehicle or as a mirror to understand American history. It's only a piece of the history, it's the legal history, but it does give a good framework. So, what are some of these laws? So, first of all, the Cumberland Road. If anyone's ever heard of the Cumberland Road, this is later in his presidency, which is a road that was called the first federal infrastructure program, which heads west because Manifest Destiny, you're heading west. Uh, What else? The Louisiana Purchase. You guys did an excellent job of summarizing the best land deal in probably the history of the world.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Where does the Cumberland Road run from uh, and to?
2: Maryland? Uh, No, and Kentucky. over time, so it starts in Cumberland, and we'll go into some detail later when we get to the Cumberland. Cumberland,
0: Road. Kentucky.
2: And over time, they did it in different sections. They couldn't do it all at once. So we'll get into some detail about the Cumberland Road. But it goes all the way out to, if I'm not mistaken, through Illinois and through Indiana. And then it ends in Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. But I'll give okay. you the specifics
0: Missouri. when we get there.
2: All right. So, what other laws? So, he repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801, and this was the Midnight Judges that were put, you know, pushed through by Adams and the Federalists. The Naturalization Act of 1802. This had to do with uh, allowing citizens to become citizens in five years instead of 14 years, because he wanted he thought that the immigrants would be sympathetic to the Republican ideals, the Democrat Republican ideals. Uh, here's an interesting one. How wrong was he? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: How well, wrong?
2: How no, wrong he was, was he? to
0: bring in some Frenchmen. <laughs>
2: That's right he was very very favorable towards the French and his Secretary of State we'll talk about came from Europe so he was very open he was very uh, you know appreciative of those who agreed with his philosophies uh, and he wanted good immigration and this is in that time frame in, in 1802 uh, but the West Point is an example and we can talk oh about good because yes. I'm going to be posting on it within the next couple of days but West Point is an example yep. uh, and people will know that uh, when he wasn't president through Virginia and he considered Virginia his home he didn't really consider uh, the United States his country he considered Virginia his country. We can talk about what that meant in his mind, but um, what's the point? West Point was, uh, was in New York, and uh, we'll go into detail about West Point, but this is an example of how someone who believes in limited government and someone who believes in shrinking government, in fact, will give some examples of how he, he slashed the federal military budget by 40%. He wanted to make cuts, and also there were reasons he didn't want federalists in the military, uh, but it's sort of ironic that uh, the president, who is, uh, you know is anti-big government, was in favor of West Point, which is creating the, the Ford already existed, but to create the academy, the you know whatever you want to call it, the the Institute of Learning, the this is for engineers when it first started. So the the Military Academy at West Point was was uh, was Jefferson. Was some other examples the Treaty of fontaine and we can go into detail. This is creating peace with France, which is consistent with we wouldn't have gotten the Louisiana Purchase if we didn't first put aside differences. And Adams has Adams, the President who preceded Jefferson, had a lot to do with it, but it, it was. Passed through the Senate during Jefferson's administration. So there are a lot of legislative accomplishments, and that just scratches the surface of some of them. And I'll give you one more before we get into other items. But but he also, and this is a reason why he's a complex guy, uh, there was a 20-year moratorium in the Constitution. They could not touch the slave trade for 20 years, and that was part of the many compromises that make up the Constitution. So one of the compromises was that Congress could not regulate slavery for 20 years. So what does Jefferson do when that 20-year moratorium ended? And in his State of the Union address, he says we should put in place a act prohibiting the importation of slaves, which was adopted. So he gets credit, and we can criticize him and we can compliment him. But one thing that he does, I believe, get credit for is the act prohibiting the importation of slaves from other countries, from Africa, from the Caribbean. So uh, it was a it was a step that many thought would lead to the gradual demise of slavery. Right. And of course, uh, that uh, was an inaccurate statement to think that that by itself would accomplish the objective of, the objective of getting Well,
0: Mr. Whitney invented the cotton gin.
2: I think in 1793, that time frame, and that may have been a reason why that gave a boost uh, to the slave trade and to uh, the, the institution, that cruel, evil institution, uh, mm-hmm. which I think we all agree is a total embarrassment. And, uh, you know, we've mm-hmm. come a long way. Right. I thought that you were correct that that, that created new markets because the, the cotton became that much more inexpensive when you had that the cotton gin. So that gets to unintended consequences. Now,
1: was Whitney, uh, uh, was he a black man or a white guy?
0: No, he was uh, a white guy, a, a Connecticut Yankee, I think. Okay. Just want,
2: I
1: just want the audience to know.
2: And that gets to the point about that technology and society... You, know, you can have these cycles of um, you know, history ebbs and flows in interesting ways, so things may have been very different uh, had that not been invented when it was invented. So those were some of the laws, because you asked that question, but uh, what are we going to cover today? So we're going to talk about the Jefferson presidency, 1801 to 1809, and I always like to point out that although statutes and stories gives all kinds of primary sources, I am not a historian, although I like to play one on the radio. Uh, so what sources are we going to cite? Because we always like to refer to some of the historians that we stand on their shoulders. So Joseph Ellis and his book, American Sphinx. And later on, I'm going to ask you guys, uh, why does he call the book about Jefferson American Sphinx? Another book we're going to be talking about is Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power by John Meekum. So he's another recent historian, and he writes extensively about Jefferson. And the Empire of Liberty, one of my favorite historians, Gordon Wood, uh, talks about this time frame. So those are the sources that we'll be referring to. And we are now off to the races with how Jefferson gets elected. So, as we said, this is 1801, and it's uh, one of the most important elections because it sets a precedent. Does anyone want to give an idea of why this election is so important in the history of democracy?
0: It it was the first transition from one political party to another, peacefully. Right.
2: Exactly. And uh, you have to understand that, you know, around the world, when one political party loses to another, it is not always peaceful uh, and it's not always a good thing. Uh, But here, uh, you know, Uh, uh, Jefferson and Adams. Aren't
1: we witnessing that right now? Could be. (laughs) Yeah, the Democrats are really pissed off that the Republicans won the election. We're, we're,
0: we're holding our bump stocks here. So that's
1: okay. <laughs> yeah, we had a bump stock story uh, radio show before you came on the air. So Guys,
2: t- I, I know the hook humor and I appreciate it. So that's uh, where I get the to tongue-in-cheek say that uh, as much as this is a great country and freedom of speech, statutes and stories doesn't always agree or disagree with all the opinions expressed. <laughs> okay, well, you
1: agree that you're more of a historian on the radio than mm-hmm. Victorias Vidal is an attorney on the radio? <laughs>
2: Right and finally you are out number, because there were two attorneys. Yeah,
1: that's game. right. That's why I throw the you know.
2: Right, so I'm not a historian tonight. I, I'm sorry. I'm not a lawyer tonight. I'm the historian who tries to go through, or at least try to make believe that I can make sense of, of the wonderful history that we get to talk about. Uh, so that was a quick little uh, legal announcement. But uh, here we go. We're talking about this peaceful transition, uh, which uh, I think we have to appreciate how it doesn't always come easy for peaceful transfers of power. And you gave some examples about how today, just look in South America, where peaceful transitions yep. uh, should be praised and recognized. So this is the first time it happens in American history under the the federal government, and it's quite interesting because uh, I'm going to be quoting extensively from his first inaugural address, and we've talked at other nights about how Jefferson started the precedent of not doing the State of the Union orally. He submitted them in writing, but he did give two and only two speeches as president, which were his first inaugural and his second inaugural, so there's a lot we can learn from reading from his first inaugural, and again, this is one of the things that statutesandstories.com, the website, does is it looks through these primary sources. So. in his inaugural address. And he talks about how the federal government, this new government, because it was still relatively new, having been created in 1787, the Constitution is ratified 1789, it takes effect the First Congress 1789. So what's the point? The point is that uh, he refers to the, America and the federal government as the world's best hope. And they give you some more quotes from that first, first inaugural address, which he does give in person, but later he doesn't give the annual addresses in person. He refers to, here's a great quote, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. This is on March 4th, 1801. <laughs> Have we heard that kind of a statement before? We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Yes. Another st- yes. But people can use this rhetoric and people can use this uh, rhetorical uh, devices. And that's one thing that different presidents do over time is they tap into the presidents who came before. So here's another interesting quote from that State of the Union address. And this gets to his philosophy. So, this isn't from the address, but this is summarizing his thinking when he's giving the address. And this is, he wanted to be a pure Republican, and we'll find out what that means. So, Jefferson is describing how I feel a sincere wish, and this is a letter he wrote, a sincere wish, indeed, to see our government brought back to its Republican principles, to see the kind of government firmly fixed to which my whole life has been devoted. What does he mean by that? He saw himself as an instrument, an instrument for recovery of pure Republicanism, and he meant by that that uh, going back to the principles which he thought had been corrupted by the Federalists, which he referred to as Anglomen or Monarchists. So he wanted to go back to what he thought were the true roots of the uh, spirit of 1776. So this is some idea of what his thinking was. And remember, he comes in uh, you know with his big transition of power. So here he's describing in his first message to Congress, uh, he says that uh, he wants to be charged the federal government should only deal with external and mutual relations of the states, all the rest meaning that the principal cares of our persons, our property, our reputation, constituting the great field of human concerns. So basically everything else should be left to the state. So he wants a very robust, strong state government, and he wants a very limited federal government. Mm-hmm. And we can give some more examples of how he wanted to shrink government. And he wanted, to, you know, you guys say this all the time on the radio, the best government is the closest government to the people. So he's a small government conservative, Jefferson. So what else does he talk about in the first inaugural? And let me give you some more examples. And here's some of the reaction to his inaugural. So this is a uh, response from uh, others who are trying to make sense and read the tea leaves when he's giving the speech. So uh, this uh, this is actually a letter that he writes. He says, I shall take no revenge then by a steady pursuit of economy and peace and by the steady establishment of Republican principles in substance and in form to sink federalism into an abyss from which there shall be no resurrection of it. So he's not going to directly undermine federalism or the Federalist Party, but he's going to chip away. at it by, and here's some examples, when he wants to shrink the federal government and shrink the military, uh, he's going to then put in place officers who are Democrat-Republicans. And uh, I think it's important to understand the context. And it was almost the perfect confluence of uh, who remembers from when we talked about Hamilton, what one of the important acts was, one of the first compromises that was reached having to do with where the government would be located. You guys want to fill in some of the details about that? The Residence Act no no. no, no. No, we don't. <laughs> okay, so we may remember and people who've seen the musical, it's a, it's a centerpiece of the second half of the play. There. The musical about how um, you know Hamilton wants to get through his financial plans, and I heard Ed mention earlier how it's yep. Hamilton's financial plans that allow the Louisiana Purchase by restoring credit, yep. getting our financial house in order, order uh, you know, with the new federal government coming in in 1789. There was a lot of work that had to be done, and Washington and Hamilton accomplished a lot. So, but one of the things that they had to give and take, the compromise, was that uh, they would move the federal capital from New York to right. another location, and that yep. location turned out to be Washington, D.C., which at the time, and we can joke about this, was was Purely a swamp. There was nothing there.
0: It was a real and, swamp,
2: and that's right. We can debate about that. And uh, for 10 years, they moved the government to to Philadelphia while they were building Washington D.C. So the reason why it's the perfect setting for. This perfect setting for Jefferson and the, and the Democrat Republicans is because really nothing had been built. They are still working on the Capitol. Uh, he's living in a boarding house, in Jefferson. You know, the, the White House is uh, still you know, under construction, so to speak. So Washington D.C. and there, there are great quotes about how people would come to visit the Capitol and they would ask, "Where is the, where is our nation's capital?" And they would, the answer would be, it's, "You're standing in the middle of the Capitol. They cut down the trees. There are tree stumps everywhere. And when Congress is meeting, they could hear the shooting of people because." this was not the the city that you would expect today where it's uh, it's urban. It's basically in the middle of nowhere, and there was great game hunting. Uh, You could shoot from where the capital was being built because uh, they're surrounded by nature.
0: There's a lot of shooting today, let me tell you.
2: So Washington, D.C., uh, you know, with this, this very teeny-tiny federal government, uh, fit perfectly with Jefferson, who wanted to shrink the size of government because he believed in pure republicanism. And let me give an example of what his opinion was about the Constitution. So uh, in his mind, he would have been happy under the Articles of Confederation, which we've talked about extensively on other evenings, but under the Articles, uh, it was a very weak federal government that uh, was difficult to get things done. And the federal government didn't have much power under the Articles of Confederation, Jefferson's mind uh, he he thought that the government could have existed with the old articles with adding only maybe three or four more paragraphs or three or more sections to it uh, so he, he wasn't fundamentally ad- opposed to the Articles of Confederation which was the original constitution during the Revolutionary War so you know he, he thought there could be minor tweaks made to it and of course the the Federalists and even Madison uh, you know believed that uh, the articles needed to be replaced entirely so, so Jefferson uh, again was really committed to a small federal government and the Washington D.C. that he became the president for—that uh, the first president to be inaugurated in Washington D.C. Uh, it was a good, as I say, a good setting for him. So here's some example, and I want to paint the picture for you. So you have this first transition of power. You have this new president coming in, totally different political party. Uh, he's at odds with the Federalists, who we thought were too monarch monarchistic or too, um, you know, bel- it was dangerous. He thought the Federalists, uh, you know, were a threat to liberty. And when we talk about the the Alien and Sedition Act to a certain extent, he was right, because mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about that another night, that that's an example of a law that I think most people today would agree was a bad law that was passed by the Federalists. the article, the Alien and Sedition Act. So the scene I want to paint for you is how he's getting inaugurated, and he's a, a guy that believes, and we'll talk about his personality. So Jefferson is a guy that doesn't believe in uh, audacious shows of, of, uh, of power or of wealth. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of uh, conservative from the perspective of um, a, a man of the people. So the scene that that I want to show is, um, you know, Washington would drive to his inauguration on a chariot with uh, six white horses and a fancy chariot. And same idea with with Adams, who was all uh, very, thought it was important to have proper titles. And he was all about um, going through protocols. And, you know, in their minds, and back when Washington became president, they were looking at examples of kings, how a king should conduct themselves. So as an example, when Washington gave his State of the Union address or he gave his inauguration speech, it was not uncommon for him to sit down like in a throne because that's how they understood how the kings would do it. So Washington would give some of his speeches seated. Uh, Jefferson's very different. So for Jefferson, he doesn't come in on a chariot with uh, fancy horses. He walks. He walks from his boarding house to the Capitol, which was not far to walk because Washington, D.C., was so small. So he walks himself not dressed in fancy attire and uh you know we can talk about how adams and in fact we can debate about this should adams have been there at the inauguration or should adams have uh, hightailed it out of town and the quick answer is adams um did not stay there for the inauguration so Adams uh, got back to Massachusetts so he didn't want to interfere with and they're making precedent because this hadn't really been done before so he didn't want to rain on Jefferson's parade so Adams who was the prior president got out of town a couple hours earlier so as not to interfere with the inauguration and they did have officials from Adams cabinet walk in the procession. So he wasn't walking alone. There were people who were walking in front of him. So by having cabinet officials from the outgoing administration precede him in the miniature parade, if you will, or the procession where he walks to Congress, and that shows the continuity of government. They also had members of the Virginia military uh, you know, proceed with their swords up. So this is how he walks. But he's not taken by a carriage. He doesn't want to be fancy. He doesn't believe in audacious displays of uh, federal power because he's a quiet lead by example guy. So what else can I tell you? Let's talk about his cabinet, because a president doesn't work alone. A president works with those who he appoints. So uh, let's, let's think. Uh, who is one of the individuals that Hamilton is Washington's right-hand man? Uh, so here's a trivia question for our listeners. Who is Jefferson's right-hand man? Who is he going to appoint as his secretary of state? Uh,
0: Madison was secretary of state, Gallatin was treasury.
2: Bingo. So this is another 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 very impressive cabinet. So Madison, who was so involved in writing the Constitution and was involved with foreign affairs and with congressional relations, becomes Secretary of State. And Gallatin, and this is I mentioned him in passing, but he was from he was Swiss. He had a lot of he had a lot of knowledge about. uh, So he came from Europe, and he spoke different languages. But he had a lot of knowledge about money and monetary uh, considerations and economics. Uh, But he was uh, night and day with Hamilton. So Gallatin believed in a small government. He did not believe in federal banks and we'll talk about some of the differences between Gallatin and Hamilton. But there are some nice quotes that I've come across where uh, Gallatin was one of the few people who intellectually was able to uh, debate Hamilton one-on-one, and, and the two of them were at different sides of the coin. Uh, but they were both very well-qualified for that role. In fact, I was just in Washington, D.C., uh, coincidentally last week, and I wanted to go to the Treasury building. If you go to the $10 bill yeah. on the front, we all know, is Alexander Hamilton. On the reverse side of a $10 bill is a picture of the Treasury. And on one side of the Treasury building in Washington is a statue of Hamilton, and on the other side of the Treasury building, which is not very far from the White House, there is a statue of Gallatin. So uh, the two Secretaries of Treasury are on opposite sides of the Treasury building in Washington, D.C. If anyone ever wanted to Google, to look at the pictures, and they're, they're good statues, uh, which give you some idea for the characters of, of, of these Secretaries of Treasury who are very different. All right, so we're talking about.
1: And I want to let the audience know that this is the first time I hear the gentleman name where was, he during, yeah, yeah. where was the first where was he during the war of independence what did he play a role in any way he was, he was in switzerland he was a, so so he wasn't an american he was an immigrant okay so he wasn't an american citizen yet he ended up as secretary of state on the, in the third presidency of the united states
0: he was a he was a good well-suited for his office
2: Wow. He was an immigrant. He was he was uh, very qualified. He had originally settled in Pennsylvania. He rose through the Republican Party ranks, which is looking for qualified people who can get the job done.
1: Yeah, I guess everybody was an immigrant basically <laughs> that's right okay
2: that's right. so uh, from geneva which made sense if he's swiss he knew banking because he's from geneva so that, that makes sense when you connect the two so he's about 40 years old hamilton was in his 30s 32 if i'm not mistaken when he became treasury secretary gallatin was about 40 years old and uh, as i said he was one of the few who could go toe-to-toe with hamilton and debate over fiscal policy the others in the cabinet which are lesser known figures levy lincoln was the attorney general henry dearborn was the secretary of War, and i'm not sure if it's the same dearborn from Michigan, we should look into
0: that. Yeah, Sorry. Fort Dearborn in Chicago.
2: I will look into that. I, I couldn't hear you, Ed. What did you say? Yeah.
0: Fort Dearborn in Chicago.
1: Yeah, sometimes he leans back like he's a Supreme Court justice. No, and no, we, no. Fort Dearborn
0: in Chicago was named after him.
2: And that makes perfect sense, because he was an early secretary of war. To make him a Ford after a secretary of war, it makes perfect sense. So let me talk a little bit about Jefferson's personality. So he does not wear fancy robes to go to his inauguration. He doesn't take a horse. He personally walks. And here's a little bit about uh, how he operated. So... The, the answer is that those who appreciated and wanted formality for example the British ambassador or the French ambassador to America uh, they're, they're good examples of how they would write back to their mother countries explaining how you know who is this guy uh, he doesn't he doesn't comb his hair it looks like he was just riding a horse he, uh, he, he will greet people and I want to read some of this to you wearing slippers so he's not all about uh, impressing people with his outward appearance you know, he wants to impress them with what he can accomplish he's not about uh, being showy and let me give you some examples of of how he was perceived by by some of the diplomats. Here it is. Jefferson is, uh, is the supreme director of measures, which means he gets things done, he's in charge. He has no leave days, meaning he doesn't take a day off. He observes no ceremony. He often sees company in an undress meaning a robe, sometimes with his slippers on, he's always accessible to and very familiar with the sovereign people. So that's uh, an example of a letter written uh, from one Federalist to another complaining about this guy, uh, that he's very different from what you would have expected with a Washington or an Adams. And let me give you another example of uh, of how people perceived him. Uh,
1: of course they saw him as a wealthy man, right? Because he had that wealth, re- a reputation of wealth. He wasn't that wealthy?
2: Was, so at, at times, depending upon how the, the markets were doing right. in Virginia, his wealth would fluctuate. But you know, he, he really didn't have to work because he was a plantation owner. And he's focused, as did Madison, he focuses his, his time on the government and the, the, the Virginia gentleman. So let me give you some example of um, you know how he understood his, and this is what I would call his personality. So let me read this to you from The Art of Power by Misham. He says, Jefferson knew who he was, and he knew his place in the world. So he had nothing to prove by constantly appearing perfectly turned out quite the opposite. Often the well-worn and the socially serene can forego badges of status, the neglect or absence of which is in itself a badge of status. So Jefferson wore different combinations of an old frock of uh, velveteen, breeches, whatever that is, yarn stockings, and ancient slippers. So you would not look at him and say that this is the president, but he conducted himself like he was the president, and he was very accessible at all hours to people who could come to the White House.
1: Yeah, another thing I learned, so he looks, I always thought that he was properly dressed and uh, somewhat of a noble, of, of nobility in terms of composure. It turns out he's walking around in slippers. <laughs> Incredible. He, he
2: wants to be. He wants to be comfortable. So an example of the British ambassador at one of the dinners, a formal dinner. Uh, you know he. Doesn't care where people are sitting, and he he invites the British ambassador at the same time as the French ambassador. And apparently, there's a hierarchy that if you're an ambassador, you're supposed to sit closer. That's the way Washington and Adams would do it. But Jefferson, uh, you know, it's uh, first come, first serve, so to speak. And uh, he lets them sit wherever they want. And the British ambassador, having been in the same room with the French ambassador, and Britain and France are basically in war at this point. Never wants to meet with Jefferson again because it was a, it was a shock. It was an insult to be in the same room with the and not be given the formalities that the British ambassador would have expected. So that's just a little bit about his personality. And you know, he's focused on getting the job done. He's not focused on the trappings of the Office of Presidency, which is consistent with his idea that the federal government should be small and the state governments are more important uh, for the everyday person's life. So he's consistent with that philosophy. What else can I tell you about him? So the you know, what about the Federalists? How do they react to this guy with all these new changes coming at oh,
1: time? Oh, I've got a question for you. Yes. what what impact did uh Thomas Jefferson's presidency have if it was negative or positive that might have provoked the war of 1812 which is not soon thereafter
2: well
0: that was Madison
1: so so it was Madison who blew it
0: yeah well it, it, Jefferson was out by 08 right so it was Madison Mr no, Madison's 09. War. yeah so it was Mr Madison's war as his opponents called it
1: because he he so it would jump no Jefferson didn't, do, didn't anything. do anything with that he was no. retired gone
2: okay That's great. so i'll answer the question this way manny and it's an excellent question so he's in office from 1801 to what do we say to 2009 and the war of 1812 is three years later so because Jefferson is so pro-French. You know, you could have imagined him wanting to go to war with Britain, uh, but he didn't. That wound up happening under Madison a couple years later. So I give him credit for not, you know, uh, precipitating a war, which is something that in earlier days he might have wanted, because he thought that the French Revolution was the continuation of the American Revolution. He is no friend of Britain. And a lot of Americans were no friend of Britain because of the Revolutionary War. So I give him credit for not taking us to war with Britain. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, the French wanted us to assist Britain. British, so yeah. I give him credit for that but, but, he did by, go but a
0: war. by the time of Thomas Jefferson's presidency though the uh, French revolution had turned into a dictatorship so it's not like he was going to rescue a republic
2: there you go. So I think that's the answer for why he's not in any rush to work with the French. And we've talked about this in other evenings that uh, Napoleon has taken over. Where there's the, the Reign of Terror and Robespierre, and the French Revolution got very bloody. And uh, I think that may have been the reason why some of the Federalists were worried with this transition of power. But what happened in France. The, you know, republicanism and democracy can be, uh, isn't always pretty and neat. Uh, but you're right, France uh, it, it sort of spun out of control. Uh, and then the, the Republican government. Government ended when Napoleon took over and made an empire. Uh, so we can talk about Napoleon uh, and how that became good for us because of the Louisiana Purchase. But I wanted to give you some more examples of uh, uh, and some of the contradictions, and that gets to the reason why the book uh, "American Sphinx," written by Ellis, uses that title because there are a bunch of contradictions. And we could go through a whole list of contradictions of Jefferson. But the, some of the points I want to make tonight is that, that he evolved as a president, and we'll give some examples of how uh, he had opportunities, and if he had been inflexible, he couldn't have taken advantage of those opportunities. So uh, he, he evolved an office he adapted, which I think all presidents have to be willing and able to do. But uh, an example of where he did go to battle was the Barbary pirates. So these, uh, these let's call them little fiefdoms, if you will, in northern Africa uh, would prey on merchant ships and would extort and get ransoms. And we paid those ransoms, uh, but uh, I, I forgot which of the Barbary pirates uh, wasn't satisfied with the with the amount we were paying, and they were trying to extort more. And Jefferson and threw up his hands and said, enough, we're not going to keep paying. We agreed, we pay you this. Now you're asking for more. So he sent ships uh, to, and he was initially successful at fighting the Barbary pirates. Uh, And uh, that's a whole separate conversation. We could spend a lot of time other nights talking about the advantages and disadvantages of fighting alone, uh, you know, these these pirates uh, off the Mediterranean. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who's a government.
0: That was the first Muslim jihadist attack on America.
2: So I don't know if I would call them jihadists. But uh, but you know, they were they were they were trying to make money and they were trying to uh, that's how they made their living. Yep. And uh, you know there are lots of examples today of uh, groups that are not friendly to us or to others that uh, that engage in those kind of tactics. But 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 and I won't pretend to be an expert on the on the, 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 no. the pirates and in the Mediterranean area. But you're right, they were from North Africa and they were not Christian. Uh, but you know, that's, that's that area of that part of the world or uh, the world. Uh, you had uh, you know those kind of. Um, Attacks on, on on merchant fleets, so that have been going on for a while. So that was an example of where there was uh, there was some warfare, or at least limited warfare, with ships, and he was not a friend of standing armies. So I mentioned earlier that he wanted to reduce the size, and did. He slashed the defense budget by 40%. And this gets us to a discussion about, before we go into some of the ironies, I want to give you some idea of how some of the Federalists reacted to Jefferson coming in with these new changes that Jefferson is instituting. Uh, so Hamilton was not a happy camper. In fact, Hamilton, I think, started getting depressed when uh, Jefferson comes in so here's a letter that Hamilton writes to Morris And Morris was one of Hamilton's, um, uh, he's also a financial guy, one of uh, Hamilton's influences, and Hamilton respected uh, Grubin Morris very much. So in this letter to Morris, Hamilton writes, perhaps no man in the United States has sacrificed and done more for the present constitution than myself. And, and I'm skipping around, I'm still laboring to prop the frail and worthless fabrics. That's why I think he's getting getting a little depressed. He says, what can I do better than withdraw from the scene? Every day proves to me more and more that this American world, uh, was not meant for me. So for Hamilton to say that, uh, that tells you that uh, you know he's not happy with Jefferson coming in. But remember that Hamilton thought Jefferson would be better than Burr. So that tells you that uh, Hamilton did not hold Burr in very much uh, you know, esteem. Uh, but Hamilton uh, did not like some of the changes that Jefferson was making. And let me give you some other examples about how Jefferson wanted a very limited role for government. So I'm quoting now from Gordon Wood. Jefferson and the Republicans in 1800 deliberately set about to carry out what they rightly believed was the original aim of the revolution, to reduce the overweening and dangerous power of government, uh, so the Democrat-Republicans would not want to see cameras uh, at intersections. So Jefferson um, initially did not much like the Constitution. He thought that three or four new articles, as I said earlier, uh, would would be sufficient to improve the Articles of Confederation. Uh, As I pointed out earlier, he did not want an ornamented coach, and what did he do? He sold the federal coach. When I say coach, this is what would be drawn by the horses. So he sold the silver harnesses, and he only kept one horse for him to ride, but he sold uh, all the other horses that Adams had used as president. And we talked about earlier how he he didn't want to see the president giving speeches. He would submit his speeches in writing every year. And we talked about it prior evenings, how it wasn't until Woodrow Wilson that they started doing the State of the Union orally. They were submitted in in writing after Jefferson's uh, precedent that he said. But he made himself very easily accessible to visitors. And as we said, he dressed informally. Here's a quote about his hair. He greeted guests in carpet slippers. He wore his hair, said one observer, in negligent disorder, though not, not ungracefully. So he's not necessarily jumping out of bed to comb his hair when he's uh, meeting with visitors and open to the the democratic populace who who have voted for him. What else can we talk about? Uh, he's shrinking the size of the government, so he he wanted to, to shrink the size of the State Department. So the diplomatic establishment was reduced from to three missions, only Britain, France, and Spain. So today we've got diplomatic relations with uh, every conceivable country, yeah. and I think we probably should have diplomatic relations with most, if not all, countries. But he shrank the State Department to only three missions, Britain, France, and Spain, which I think were probably the most but, important uh, European powers.
0: But, you know, uh, in terms of uh, government spending, I think he did commission the building of around six super frigates, including the USS Constitution and the constellation uh, to go after the pirates. They were uh, they were you know, we couldn't afford a, a real battleship, but we built something close to it that was reinforced and uh, they lasted a long time then they were they worked pretty well the, the there were about half a dozen uh, new super super because they were, re, uh, kind of reinforced with uh, timber so that they would withstand uh, battle. But so Jefferson did invest in the Navy. Now, he cut back the Army, which is makes sense because the Army is what can do a coup, but he invested in the Navy to protect commerce.
2: I completely agree and it makes sense with his his role of the federal government. The navy is offshore. Right. The navy is to protect against others. The navy can only do so much damage, whereas he's worried about standing armies, which is a perfect segue. I'm gonna talk a little bit about when Napoleon does his coup d'etat, meaning where Napoleon takes control, he sees his power, and there were three members of the directorate who was supposed to be the executive in France. So when Napoleon declares himself and takes control under this coup d'etat in seventeen ninety nine, November and overthrows the French republic there were different lessons that can be drawn for the federalists the lesson was that too much democracy can lead to dictatorship which is what happened in france but instead the lesson that that the jefferson and the, the democrat republicans drew was and i'm going to quote jefferson says i read it as a lesson against standing armies." so that was his approach to uh, the dangers of napoleon taking over it was the standing armies that were bad it wasn't the uh, the navies So after he took office, he made sure that the military budget was dramatically cut. Uh, But here's that irony, that he's willing to invest money in West Point to create that academy for engineers and for, uh, you know, for army officers. Uh, so how do you reconcile that? And I think I described earlier that one reason that he would be willing to do it is he believed in education, and he believed that uh, you know anyone who could qualify could go to West Point, and uh, they didn't have to come for money, so it's a free institution to go to West Point. Uh, the other point is that um, you know he wants a new corps of officers who are going to be loyal as Democrat Republicans, so he can he can shed the Federalists who are who are loyal to Washington and Hamilton, and Hamilton was very imp- played a big role in building up the military. So by shrinking the military. You know it's a way of um minimizing Hamilton and Hamilton's influences. So what else can we talk about? Uh, I want to come back to Jay's treaty but uh, changing the subject a little bit uh, I've got a great quote which I love and I, I think everyone will, will appreciate this and we can try to figure out who said it but in the 1960s we have a president who's doing a, a, a dinner at the White House and he's honoring he's honoring members who've been awarded the Nobel Prize from around the world so you've got a room full of geniuses who are Nobel Prize winners and let me see what he says so this president I'm going to ask you who do you think says this and who do you think he's talking about. So this president in the 1960s uh, says the following, he says, never before, I want to get it right.
0: Oh, that was Kennedy.
2: (laughs) Kennedy, so you knew from the 1960s. Well, never before, I knew from never
1: before. No, he
0: said, never before has uh, such a distinguished group of scholars dined in the White House, except when Thomas Jefferson dined alone." alone.
2: Exactly. That, that was Kennedy. Let me, let me give you the quote from Kennedy. This is April 29, 1962. You get it right. I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. So uh, yeah, and, and, you can't
1: get a more you can't get more eloquent than
0: that. Who wrote all those lines for Kennedy? Was it uh, <laughs> Theodore uh, Sorensen? I
2: yeah. don't know. We, Some... we can look into that. So uh, then he gives examples of what. Jefferson could do. Someone once said that Thomas Jefferson was a gentleman of 32 who could calculate an ellipse or an eclipse, survey an estate, tie an artery, plan an edifice, try a cause because he was an attorney, break a horse, and dance the minuet, so that gives you some idea of what he was capable of. And I want to add now to Kennedy's description. Uh, So another book that I'm familiar with, it's called A Strange Case of Mistaken Identity, talking about Jefferson by Alf Mapp. And uh, he gives the example of how when Jefferson was vice president, because he was the vice president for Adams, uh, he became the president of the American Philosophical Society. Now, today, when we think philosophy, we're thinking of those who are trying to explore the nature of uh, ethics and the operation of the universe. Uh, but then, philosophy was a broader conversation. Because uh, you know, Aristotle was trying to understand the universe, but trying to do it with mind experiments, not through uh, you know the scientific method experiments. So, philosophy and philosophical it uh, was a broader kind of context and could include natural sciences. So, you have the vice president at the time. I'm Thomas Jefferson, and so this is before 1800. I gets sworn in as the president of the American Philosophical Society that he probably probably played a role in founding, and he presents a paper about megalonics because he was going through Virginia fossils that he found, and he writes a paper and presents it to the American Philosophical Society about me- megalonics. So um, I would ask. That's the uh, first
1: time I hear that word.
2: I never heard it either, <laughs> but uh, it's basically a fossil of a great cat so the megalonics refers to the giant claw so here you have a guy that becomes president writing about uh, prehistoric virginia and writing about this uh, prehistoric animal three times larger than an african lion and uh, he's writing scientific papers basically so so there's no doubt that jefferson was a genius and uh, you know he's a complex character and we'll get to some of that complexity so uh, here's an example of how some appreciated him and some hated him. So Jefferson embodied all that many Americans feared and all for which many others hoped. He was at once one of the most hated and one of the most idolized men in America. And those who loved him were the majority of the voters because he won by wide margins. Uh, so he was uh, you know, very popular with the Democrat-Republicans, but the Federalists were afraid of him because they didn't know what he'd be capable of with this transfer of power. And uh, one of the points I want to make today is that, uh, you know, he did adapt. Office. So by the time he was done, he was using, and we'll hopefully get to some of the examples, using some Federalist policies, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of those laws. Well,
1: no, let's talk about it now. Uh, what what is what is like chief on your mind in terms of what Jefferson used that was a Federalist power?
2: All right. So we already talked about West Point. So West Point is an academy which is in the um, you know which was a, here's the irony that the Hamilton for years. And if you read some of Washington's speeches that were written by Hamilton, Washington is asking for the creation of a military academy, but he can't get it through Congress. So the irony is that even though Washington and Hamilton have been trying to do this for years, it is Jefferson who accomplishes the creation of West Point as a military academy. And someone who's trying to shrink the government would necessarily be someone who's recommending that we build a military academy. But that, that now gets to, and here's how I'm going to start answering the question. We talked about the Cumberland Road and how the Cumberland Road is an infrastructure project. You know, he wants to strengthen the federal government, but that requires hiring surveyors uh, to survey. And that's the first law that he passes having to do with the Cumberland Road. And we, we talk about this on Statutes and Stories, so I invite everybody to go to .com, which is all one word, statutes, no space, and A-N-D, no space, stories, dot com. So there's a very detailed analysis I do of, let me give you the details, the name of the act, which was adopted in 1806, was an act to regulate the laying out and making a road from Cumberland in the state of Maryland mm-hmm. to the state of Ohio. So that's how they originally foresaw it a road that would go all the way from Maryland, which is where Cumberland was, to the state of Ohio. That's what I said.
1: I'm sorry, it, Vidal, it, it, you know, sometimes I say Cumberland
0: say, is in Maryland. Yep, I yeah, think well, correctly. I said
1: that the road started in Maryland.
0: Okay, good.
1: And I, so. You must you know I thought it was from Kentucky stand, correct that's twice I stand corrected Jeez. you know this is this is where a layman has to defend himself against two attorneys and you know I gotta defend but
0: him this is a, interstate commerce.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. all about interstate commerce, and let's go through some of the reasons why it was consistent with the Democrat-Republican philosophy of small government to allow an interstate commerce through through this, this road. So they, the names for it were, some called it the National Road, and that's in quotes the National Road, or the First Federal Highway, it's referred to as the Gateway to the West, which made sense for Jefferson, who did the Louisiana Purchase. So it took several years to lay out and do the surveying, and they finally began construction in 1811. and I. I Think uh, you know, uh, for many years the Cumberland Road became the main street of America. So for every uh, you know a, a day's travel in a carriage or by horse, there'd be another city that pops up, so people could stop and they could rest and get their supplies. So this is how the country heads west. So uh, you know, to the credit of Congress, when they when they sort of acquired uh, the Northwest Territories before the Louisiana Purchase, and uh, when they started admitting Ohio into the country in 1803, they decided that we're going to impose a tax, so the, the law that I'm talking about was 1806, but starting in 1803, they put a tax in place.
1: It was called the Turnpike, right?
2: So they're going to do turnpikes. That comes a little later. But 5% of the sale of public lands, 5% of the proceeds when they start selling land, because the federal government owns a lot of land that they're selling. So they set aside 5% of the land sales to go for this road that's going to be built. So they they had the foresight of saving the money before they start spending it. And uh, that was 5% of the proceeds from the sale of public lands. And then by 1806, they had some money so they could start laying out and doing the surveying. So the Cumberland uh, had a little bit of history. So why did they do it from Cumberland? So Cumberland had served as the military headquarters for Colonel General Washington during the French and Indian War. And interestingly, during the Whiskey Rebellion, and we've talked about that on other evenings, and of course on Statutes and Stories, we've got a nice discussion of the Whiskey Rebellion and the this tax that was passed, the whiskey tax by Hamilton, trying to raise money to pay off the federal debts and the state debts. So the Whiskey Rebellion is where Washington returned to Cumberland in 1794 to review his troops. So it was it was a location, which was a good, a good starting point uh, for the Cumberland Road, and it was, it was well known to Washington for various reasons he'd been there several times. So that's a little bit about the Cumberland Road. Uh, What else can we talk about? So I want to talk real briefly about some of the technology, so that's another theme today to show respect to Jefferson, who's such a bright guy and a scientist and an engineer. So how did they do the road? And the answer is that they had a, a Scottish engineer, and his name was John McAdam, and the process that he'd come up with was called McAdamization for his name, John McAdam. And what they did is they would use a convex surface, so the road would, would be uh, steeper at the top and slope down a little bit, so that water would pour off the side of the road. So
1: no, you mean that- crown of the road, the
2: center of the road, would be... center of uh, thank you. The center of the road is a little bit higher, yes. so uh, so uh, so the water could go off to the side, and this new paving technique, would have, which had been, you know, engineered or invented in England, in Scotland, uh, which is, of course, everyone knows Scotland is near England, but they're all ruled by more or less the same king and queen. So the Macadam process had this convex surface, which was raised and used uh, gravel at the top, and then it had Stones, larger stones at the base, than symmetrical patterns. So that's the way they, the way they did it. And it was very labor intensive to pulverize. They weren't using machinery. They would pulverize the rocks to make the gravel, and uh, then you have to maintain it. And that's that's where you're right, absolutely, Manny. That uh, later on, when the federal government decided that we had enough of this road system, uh, we now have it's more important to have railroads. So when the federal government sort of uh, let's let's call it sold off or or handed off the Cumberland Road to the different states it allowed the states to put in place tolls. that's how the state yeah
1: was. toll yeah yeah and turnpike it, means mm-hmm. turn the pike which was a log so, okay. and you charge the toll so that's where the word turnpike came from
0: okay
2: exactly right so that's in the 1830s. Uh, when they decide that the railroads and canals are more important. So the Cumberland Road has served its purpose of letting immigrants and uh, people who have become pioneers to head out west through the Cumberland Pass. And that's another real quick point, which is that some of us may have heard about the Cumberland Pass through the mountains, but the Cumberland Road does not go through the Cumberland Pass. They're two different places. Uh, But uh, sometimes it's referred to as Route 40. So U.S. Route 40 is the Cumberland Road. So uh, that was was a very important set of uh, laws that were passed by Jefferson to head west. And he, he believed in expansion, manifest destiny, the term gets labeled later, but, but he believed that our future was out west, and, and there's a lot of truth to that.
1: Well, you know that I make that statement, I made it earlier today, that, um, I make a statement in my book that you will soon uh, uh, be confused with as you read it, but I make a statement, a big bold statement, that the manifest destiny that commenced in Jefferson's time was then denied by Americans themselves by excluding Cuba from it. It shouldn't have just gone west. It should have included south.
0: It went south to Cuba's game What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> it's as far as it got, south of Miami. Yep. Um, and I make a claim that uh, America denied its manifestosity in 1960 when it excluded Cuba because of oh, all of the state In 1960? Yeah.
0: 1961
1: well,
2: What, what, what uh, manifesto was that?
1: Well, I basically make the claim as if I invented it myself in my head I, I write uh, sections of my book making the claim when it came to allowing communism to fester in Cuba well we, that, that was a ba-
0: violation of the Monroe Doctrine
1: basically denying our manifest destiny because it uh Cuba's has destabilized so many economies since that you see it manifested in the in the 22 million yeah. illegal population of the United States destabilizing the labor yeah. and the labor rates and and the labor conditions in this country we just there's no real supply and demand when it comes to to labor in the United States and proper compensation for people's work because we have so many illegals. And it all commenced with the destabilization of Latin America, which I blame on communist Cuba. Period. End of story. Back to Jefferson. Monroe
0: Doctrine. Monroe.
1: Yes. And the Platt Amendment being repealed no, and the Treaty of Relations that. of 1934. All these things, uh, little by little, whittled away what was a glorious... Uh, destiny of the United States it was really harnessed um, hampered by the revolution in Cuba and I believe that to this day and i uh, you'll see that I write many I give you many examples Okay, back
2: to Jefferson. I look forward to reading that, and I have not had a chance to read it yet. But let me pull this uh, strand, and I'll build on it. Okay. So I heard you earlier mention the Ostend Manifesto, which was under President Pierce. Yes. And there had been a slave rebellion in Cuba, and there were southern states who wanted the United States to invade Cuba or to take over Cuba if Spain didn't give it to us. And um, that leads me to a discussion about uh, Jefferson and slavery, because you have to talk about his contradictions. Yes. So of course, Jefferson. Was a slave owner. But uh, what I mentioned earlier was that in 1807, when that 20 year period expired, uh, now the Constitution allows the regulation or Congress to do something about slavery. So uh, Jefferson, in his State of the Union address in 1807, asks and calls upon Congress to uh, prohibit the importation of slaves. And what I'm going to describe here is that this 1807 act, and it's also discussed discussed in detail on statutes and stories, the name of it was the act prohibiting the importation of slaves. And um, what does that act do? It says that, and I'll describe it to you, and it makes perfect sense that the 20-year grace period had ended. So the, the framers, in a way, had put in place a mechanism of how we could have ended slavery uh, when that 20-year period ended. Uh, so individual states are now free to do what they want, but the federal government can now start regulating slavery. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the perverse effect of the act was that we couldn't import slaves from other countries, uh, but we still allowed the slave trade domestically. And it wound up increasing the cost of and the, the price, because it's getting to economics, and we could
1: yeah. Supply and demand, here we go. <laughs>
2: so uh, they wound up uh, making slavery at the same time as the the, the cotton gin in 1793. Uh, so that's an example of a perverse effect, but I think Jefferson's heart was in the right place. Uh, he realized, and there are some wonderful quotes about how he described slavery as a violation of human rights, and uh, he thought that the slave trade was horrible. Uh, there were millions of people who died during the, 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 the passage from Africa to America, uh, so you know, at least the window was open that we could have done something about slavery and without having to fight the of war, but it didn't work out that way and, and part of it was economics. Uh, so, let me see if I can quote you some of the...
1: Including the, uh, the, the urban planning and development of Washington, D.C. That probably could not have been constructed without slaves.
0: Oh, they could have paid some Irishmen to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe
2: there there's some good books that have come out in the last couple of years about um about the the, the important role of the slave population in, in washington d c yep. but the here here are no, more than one million died during that uh, that Middle Passage is what it was called. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the process of how 12 million Africans were shipped into America and did not come by choice. But again, I'm, I'm trying to make the point that Jefferson wanted to and did succeed in prohibiting the importation of slaves from other countries, and that would include the Caribbean. And another reason, perhaps, for why he wanted those ships that Ed uh, that mentioned earlier was that uh, you had to enforce that law. Mm-hmm. If you're going to prevent importation and you're going to prevent uh, those who are either pirates or those who are Engaging in the slave trade from overseas, you have to have a navy that can put teeth into the law. So at least I give him credit for that.
1: Yes, yep. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the maritime inter- interdictions. I mean, that's yeah, and revenue
0: cutters run by the. Oh, and also to collect too. the tax. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Didn't so, you say Ed, that there were that John and Samuel Adams made a ton of money, or was it you, Adam? They made a ton of money avoiding the 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 cutters and the tax during the whiskey. The revolt? British.
0: No, No, Samuel Adams
1: and John Adams apparently made a ton of money avoiding attacks. How about that? Oh, I didn't know that. We didn't know that? Okay. Never mind. For another day.
2: Okay. You were were paying attention, Manny. So some of the founding fathers were smugglers. They were smuggling (laughs) rum and smuggling other goods.
1: So it was you that said it, right? I wasn't hearing things.
2: Yeah, Sam Adams, and in fact Hancock in particular—that's how he made his money was uh, through smuggling. Uh, they were avoiding the British taxes yeah. uh, and the tariffs that the British had imposed right. on imports from the the other islands in the Caribbean that weren't uh, weren't British colonies. For example, the Dutch colonies and the French colonies, etc. So I, I think it's important that we have to talk a little bit, at least, about that. Before he became president, everyone knows that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. So let's uh, spend a little bit of time talking about, and we talked about his. Pro- personality. Uh, but he was not so much a speaker, he was a writer. And uh, some of the, the, I think some of the most beautiful language in, in American and world politics was written by Jefferson. So in drafting the Declaration, what did he draw upon? Because he didn't come up with all the ideas himself. He built upon some of the, uh, the thinkers, for example, John Locke. Uh, I heard some discussion earlier about uh, Montesquieu, and we could talk about some of the, the French and other uh, Enlightenment thinkers. But Jefferson drew upon various sources, including the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And uh, and uh, of course, Jefferson had also drafted the Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which he built upon, was drafted by George Mason. And here's something that's interesting: Jefferson considered George Mason to be the uh, the brightest guy of his age. And here's the quote: uh, Jefferson labeled Madison. I'm sorry, Jefferson labeled George Mason the wisest man of his generation. So that tells you if Jefferson thought that Mason was the wisest man, that tells you something about George Mason. So the reason why he said that is, I'm going to read you from the Virginia Declaration of Rights that was written by Mason and tell me if you recognize any of this language, and it's going to sound very familiar. So, again, this is the Bill of Rights uses when he writes the Declaration of Independence. Okay. So This is George Mason in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, that all men are by their nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent inherent rights of which they cannot deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety.
1: Yeah, it's a clone, (laughs) the clone of the Declaration.
2: It's very close to the Declaration. So he takes those ideas from Mason in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and he crafts it into the beautiful U.S. Declaration of Rights in 1776.
1: So he basically, so Mason uh, defines unalienable yeah, rights. But
0: Mason didn't didn't agree with the Constitution. He was an anti-federalist.
1: Incredible. Yep. What, what contradictions?
0: No, no, no. I mean, you know. Yeah, that... it's
1: yeah, the it's battle of wits. I mean, fully understandable.
0: Yeah. Even after the Bill of Rights, I think.
1: Yeah, what's what's most important for the audience to understand about the United States of America is it's indisputable that we had a certain natural rights before we formed this government, and they cannot be taken from us. And obviously, that's in the pursuit of our happiness. And I find some of the laws that have been passed are contradictory to that. I mean, on its face, like the estate tax. How can you not What could be the ultimate pursuit of happiness for an individual than to leave their kids and next of kin with a better life than they had themselves? I can't see anything that 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 allows the government to tax the dead like that, and that's a total.
0: After a tax has been paid already, while the the person was was alive,
1: absolutely. I mean, that is the complete denial of the pursuit of happiness, and yet there it is as a law. And when the Trumpster tried to get rid of it, he could only get rid of it up to twenty-two million when in fact it should apply to billions, and no one should envy someone else's sweat and wealth, and yet there it is, sitting there, like granite and stone, the estate taxa. And that is so contradictory to that declaration that Adam's reading in both Virginia and the United States, and yet somehow some progressive got it in there. Ah, okay, go ahead, Adam.
0: Woodrow Wilson.
1: Woodrow. So,
2: just to get more background about some of the Virginians, which was the largest state at the time. So, Virginia, one of the wealthiest states at the time. So, some of these Virginians, and I, I can't blame them, were very fearful of too much federal power, which is why, and I don't remember specifically about George Mason, but uh, Patrick Henry is another example. He was from Massachusetts about how he smelt the rat. He did not want to see this new federal constitution uh, give so much federal authority to a president. Uh, so, you know, they wanted to protect their, their individual states because they thought their states were, um, you know, their countries. They didn't consider. Or you know New Hampshire or or Vermont, which hadn't become a state yet. You know they didn't consider Georgia. They, if someone was from Georgia, they were Georgian. They, they, it took time before you developed an American identity as all the states being merged yep. together as a single country. <clears throat> but in our limited time, I wanted to follow through with the promise I made earlier, which is to show how Jefferson adapted it in, in office and and that he was open to uh, things that he had to do as president that were appropriate. So here's a quote from Henry Adams, and Henry Adams is a, another historian, and he's from the same Adams family. So historian Henry Adams is talking about how, you know, in the context of the Cumberland Road and internal improvements, and when we talk about Gallatin, who was Jefferson's secretary of, uh, of treasury, <clears throat> they did believe in, in canals and um, doing what they needed to do to build roads heading west. And this is a quote from Henry Adams, and he describes Jefferson, who was known as the sage of Monticello. That he gave up some of his his Virginia dogmas and abandoned his traditional pro-agriculture and anti-industrial views when he thought it was appropriate to do so. And here's another example uh, when it comes to France. And I think Ed was right that once the French Revolution spins out of control, uh, Jefferson sort of, uh, you know, takes a step back. But... um, You know, he's very pro-France, and uh, this is in the 1803 period, when Spain had controlled the Louisiana territory, and Spain controlled Louisiana and New Orleans. But Napoleon, uh, through machinations in Europe, winds up getting control, uh, although it wasn't made too public, it was all done behind the scenes. So France winds up (laughs) taking back Louisiana. And, and New Orleans is part of Louisiana, from Spain. And here's, a, I think, a wonderful sentiment of how Jefferson realizes that although he's pro-France, if France gets in the way of America's interests, he's not going to be pro-France. So here's a quote from how Jefferson is explaining what's going to happen if Louisiana falls into the hands of the French. In a way. Why would, would this matter? because Spain was very weak, and Spain can't really do anything against America at the time in the France, however, had aspirations of an empire. In fact, France was trying to do that. Napoleon is trying to conquer Europe, but he also has aspirations on new colonialism in America in our backyard. So this is a statement that Jefferson makes, realizing that Napoleon had ambitions for building an empire in our territory in the Western Hemisphere. Jefferson says, the day that France takes possession of New Orleans, we must marry ourselves to the British fleet and nation. And that tells you something, that he, as much as he does not like the British and he loves the French, if France yep. gets control of New Orleans, all bets are off. And thankfully, we worked out the Louisiana Purchase and we were able to buy Louisiana Starting where we we went back to where we started, thanks to some of the financial dealings and the financial programs that Hamilton put in place. But I'm trying to make the point that Jefferson, you know, he had ideals and he had beliefs, but he, he needs to adapt and uh, you know jettison the French if it's not in America's best interest.
0: Yeah, he was an America first guy.
2: I absolutely agree with that, and we need all presidents need to be America first. So uh, as we get close to the end of our hour, I, I mentioned earlier, why does the historian that we talked about, uh, Ellis. Why does Ellis title his book, his biography about Jefferson, America's Sphinx? So we can't say Sphinx without asking you the question, and some of the listeners maybe know, uh, what was the what was the famous, maybe one of the most famous riddles in America or in world history or Greek history and in mythology? What is the riddle of the Sphinx? So I'm going to read you what the riddle is, and let's take a shot at trying to figure it out. Uh, so the Sphinx is said to have guarded the entrance to the Greek city of Thebes. And, of course, the Sphinx is the, the big, what do we call it, the statue, the engraving in, in, in Africa near near, uh, near Egypt near near, um, near Cairo or near where the pyramids are. So what is the riddle of the Sphinx? So here's the riddle and there are different ways you can look at the riddle, different interpretations of it, but one way is that uh, the the Sphinx would ask, and the Sphinx is supposed to be a mythological creature, a big uh, lion body with a human head, and sometimes they depict depict the Sphinx with wings, Uh, and if you don't answer the question correctly, then you get eaten because the Sphinx is a beast. So the question is, and there are different ways of raising it, which creature has one voice yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed, so that's one way that you could ask it. Or what creature uh, walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? So if uh, a so sphinx is towering over you and asking you that question, do we want to take a shot at trying to solve that riddle? Well, a man.
0: Because th- uh. <laughs> you have four four feet when you're crawling, then you're walking, then you have a cane. three.
1: No, no, the cane it's not bodily, so it has to be what? Beast.
2: So from four to two to three.
1: Yeah, the three's got you. It's kind of vulgar if you throw the joke in there. Chase.
2: <laughs> All right, I won't touch that with a pole. With, uh, with the <laughs>
1: well, you just did. You just used pole. <laughs>
2: So, uh, but, but you're all right. So the idea is that uh, this is man. So man starts off as a baby on four, you know, on hands and legs, hands and yeah. feet, and then, uh, you know, stands up upright, and then uh, you know, years later, uh, maybe I mean, you have to use a cane. But the, the, the idea here is that uh, Jefferson is an enigma. So basically,
1: and, uh, Victoria's Vidal is correct again. Well, I'm keeping score, by the way, because you know, while you're don't, talking, no, don't, don't. You know, we're doing this. You know, they just jostling to find out who's answering your questions most.
0: No, I.
1: And he tries to play humble servant, you know, humble Texan. I don't believe it one second. So anyway, the cane ends up holding true. Okay, fine. I'm I'm wrong. I lose. <laughs> I've given up.
2: That's, are we? Do we have enough time for one more riddle? On Absolutely. Okay. For but you, you got Cumberland right.
1: I got Cumberland right, and I also got Bernie Madoff right as as an executive chairman of. Non-executive chairman of NASDAQ. I don't oh,
0: know about that.
1: Bernie Madoff was was head of NASDAQ. Okay, go ahead. That was the right. previous so hour.
2: The other riddle that the Sphinx, in different depictions and different stories, asks, and this is a little bit harder to, to figure out. But if you look up, you'll get us. You'll get a hint. So the second riddle that the Sphinx asks is, I'll read it to you. There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other. And she, in turn, gives birth to the first, who are the two sisters. So, again, these are riddles that the Sphinx asks. Uh, here we're describing it as two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. And if you want the answer, uh, sort of look up to the heavens.
1: Wow, that one's a good one. Jeez. See, one I'm, I'm
0: deferring to... to you to answer this.
1: One, uh, geez. Uh, it, can, uh, it can only be the grandmother. <laughs> grandmother gives birth to don't
2: think of sisters and don't think of giving birth but you know what what's happening in the sky of something being replaced by something else
1: oh the the sun and the moon
2: so that's the second riddle of the Sphinx. So I, I think we can end it there. That Jefferson uh, was a genius. Uh, we owe a lot to, to his legacy. Um, you know, But I, I think I, I give him credit for being someone who uh, understood his role coming in to lead the, the Democrat-Republicans. Uh, that he didn't want to directly assault the the federalists, but he would chip away at federal authority. Uh, you know, he, he reduced the size of the federal government and the military, but he was receptive to putting in place West Point, to building the Navy, and uh, when that opportunity presented itself to purchase Louisiana to double the size of the country, you know, he took advantage of that, and many people would not have predicted that Jefferson would be the president uh, to spend that kind of money to, uh, to do what he did, but uh, he, he realized it was in the best interest of the country, and uh, I think that's the reason why he's one of the presidents that's
1: Well, I can't thank you enough, and uh, the appreciation that uh, you have expressed about Jefferson is well taken. I'm sure the audience on WSQF 94.5, Statues and Stories, uh, really can appreciate the value of the the presidency. And unfortunately, it gives more value to John F. Kennedy's quote with all those Nobel Peace Prize uh, having dinner with him. And I must say, it's, I'm reluctant to give uh, John F. Kennedy much credit for about anything, but um, you definitely uh, have proved that that was a great moment. Because John, uh, I, I mean, I always thought of Jefferson simply as the one who was doing battle with Adams all the time, and I never really saw him as a uh, Benjamin Franklin type, you know, well versed at other mm-hmm. at other things, you know. Franklin is always a person I see as not only a publisher but a scientist and yeah a Renaissance
0: at, man really and also an
1: astronomer and stuff like that. So, thank you very much, Adam, and uh, hopefully uh, you won't be flying next week.
2: Let me do another quick. Uh, shout out to Nova Southeastern University, and as uh, many people will remember, on March 17th, running through April 15th, we have a Hamilton exhibition, and if anyone wants to see Washington's signature, we've got document- documents, these are archival, museum quality pieces, Is, to see a Washington signature, a Jefferson signature, a madisons actually several Madison signatures, a Franklin signature, uh, to see newspapers from that time period, from the 1790s, etc. And then, of course, uh, the old laws that we talk about with Statutes and Stories. So come on out to Nova Southeastern University, March 17th, which is St. T- Patty's Day. And do you guys remember what time does the exhibit open?
0: 2 p.m. is your speech. Or you're Good elect- o'clock.
2: We're opening the exhibition open. It's uh, free to the public with refreshments. And uh, feel free to go to statutesandstories.com to read all about it. Great. Well, Thanks, thank, you, buddy.
1: thank you very much. Take care. Good night. So that's but, the end of uh, this yeah, three-hour block.
0: And I have to admit, uh, Bernie Madoff was a investment advisor on Wall Street, and the technology that his firm developed became the basis for NASDAQ. That was back around 1971. So they made
1: him a non-executive. No, chair. no,
0: he was. So he was. He was a, a stockbroker uh, and a dealer in that time.
1: Are you trying to no, salvage so he, your he, reputation? No,
0: not salvage it. I didn't know this. I, so, but, but, but I did. What he did, yes, yes. So what he did later so give, was, was give uh, he, he traded on, the that king. Rep, on that reputation that he had as a innovative trader uh, later on when he uh, took people's money. All right. There so you are. Good job.
1: We do this for free as a community of not only... Uh, key Rats, but we also have mainland maggots coming to out to Key Biscayne. So all of us have to thank Ed Vidal, who treaches through really, really difficult traffic to get here
0: oh, no, every Monday so for the Concrete not Conservative. Not so
1: bad. Thank you very much, my executive producer extraordinaire, Ed Vidal for the Concrete Conservative WSQF 94.5. This was Statues of Stories. Take care, my friends. Now you'll listen to Chris Ann Hall and her current events show called
0: Liberty First University.
1: SQF, Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and Miami, Blink Radio.